So if you could turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. Now, that's in the New Testament. It's page uh, number um, 1827, if you have a pew Bible. 1827. 2 Timothy 4. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse Timothy was a young pastor. He pastored the church in Ephesus. And this is what uh, we commonly term a pastoral epistle. Um, It's an older believer writing to a younger believer. And this older believer is actually in prison. So this is his swan song. Um, This is his last letter. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. So reads God's precious word. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the Righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This great, the triumphant epitaph of the Apostle Paul, which he himself wrote as a summary of his life, has occupied our thinking for the past few weeks. As Christians, we're all very much aware of the fact that God is a God of great grace. We end it on that note this morning. God willing, as I say, next Sunday morning, we'll take up the theme of grace. God has poured out to undeserving sinners the grace of salvation, and beyond that, grace upon grace. Abundant grace for time and eternity is promised to God's children. We learn that God is not only a God of grace, But God is a God of generous and abounding, yes, super abounding grace. The amazing grace of God causes God to want to reward. Now imagine that. The amazing grace of God causes God to want to reward faithful believers. It's almost unimaginable. Isn't it, friends, that God, who by grace saves us, and God, who by grace enables us to 
live the Christian life should, by grace, reward us for what he has done in us. And yet he does. In Genesis chapter 15, after Abram had just given testimony of his faithfulness to God by not accepting gifts from the king of Sodom. That was in chapter 14. Abram says in chapter 15, verse 1, God says to Abram in chapter 15, verse 1, when the, Lord, when, when the word of the Lord came to Abram, uh, Abram had a vision, and God says to him, Abram, do not be afraid, for I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. You see, God has chosen to give his beloved very great rewards, very great honor. The culmination of God's love and the culmination of God's grace, the culmination of God's generosity is what he has planned as a reward for those who faithfully love and serve him. You fast forward and you come into the New Testament. In Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, speaking and he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So you're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says you rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? Well, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. No matter what you may endure in this world, God in his loving, generous, infinite, super abounding grace has prepared a great reward for his children in heaven. In fact, the apostle Paul refers to things which I has not seen, and he's quoting from Isaiah 64, isn't it? Uh, and he refers to things that I has not seen, ear has not heard, which has not entered into the heart of man concerning all of what God has prepared for those who love him. The apostle Peter saw it. In his first epistle, Peter looked ahead and he says, First Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 3 and 4, Peter says, as he looks ahead to that living hope, he says that uh, it's a living hope that Jesus had prepared and purchased for us in his resurrection from the dead, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that will not fade away, reserved for you, in heaven. You see it friends. Reward. Reward in heaven. Reward in eternity. That's God's plan. For his people. Psalm, Psalm 58 verse 11. Surely. Surely there is reward. For the righteous. The writer of the book of Hebrews. Characterizes God. As a rewarder. Of those who diligently seek him. God is a rewarder of his people. 
He has promised that, hasn't he? And was there anyone who ever lived more in the light of that eternal reward than the beloved Apostle Paul? You know, he, he, he lived for that eternal reward. He was not at all preoccupied uh, with what he had gained in his life. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I count all things lost. I count it all rubbish for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss, he says, of all things. He says, I count them absolute rubbish. Why? That I may gain Christ. And he continues in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, so I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Brethren, he says, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and pressing on, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize, for the reward of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, none of these these things in this world are dear to me. Not even my life is dear to me. He said, I want to accomplish God's work and receive from God's hand that which he has prepared for me. Things in this life are totally incidental to Paul. You know, even the sufferings that he went through in life. He said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, you know, these sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory with which we shall be, which shall be revealed in us. And then he has that wonderful statement in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, for our light affliction. You, you read what the Apostle Paul went through, and he terms it light affliction. He says it's but for a moment, because it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And the Apostle Paul says, I have my eyes upon eternal things. I have my eyes upon an eternal reward. And that's where where his eyes are in our text, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Looking to the future... He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here's the apostle Paul facing death, facing his own martyrdom. And yet Paul has no fear. He has no regret. No pressing desire to stay in this world. 
He longed for the world to come. And he longed for the reward to come in that eternal world. That was his hope. I remember verses 6, 7 and 8 are a summary of the Apostle Paul's life. And verse 6, it's the present tense. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. Here he is in this Roman prison and he looks at the close of his life and he's ready to depart. He sees where he is. He understands that it's an honor for him to die for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his last act of sacrificial loyalty to his Savior. Verse 7, as he refused his past life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And as he looked over the course of his life, he remembered that he had been faithful. He had no regrets. Uh, no sadness, no sense of unfulfillment, no feeling of incompleteness, no, um, you look back, not the smallest thing left undone. He had finished the work that the Lord had given him to do, just as he hoped that he would be able to finish the work that the Lord had given him to do. Um, he indicated that didn't he, in Acts chapter 20 when he was talking to the Ephesian elders. And as he faces death, he faces death with a triumphant spirit. He has seen the grace of God accomplished within him, all that God designed. And now he is ready to face death. The past is the past. The present is almost past, and all that remains is the future. And so let's look at verse 8, along with the Apostle Paul. Let's see how, how did he view the future, the crown of his life, and the fact that he will be rewarded. This, dear friends, is the joy of the heart of every faithful Servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to the end of their life. Paul, knowing that he was faithful, knew that he was to be rewarded. He says in verse 8, finally, literally, all that remains, all that is left. That, that's what he's saying. All that is left for me is to receive my Reward. All that is left for me is to receive what God has for me. Now, somebody might say this seems a little egotistical. Um, Paul's saying, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith, I've done it all. My Lord, I want to be rewarded. You know, it seems very much like a a works-orientated righteousness. It's all that I have done and I am expecting to get something at the end of it. So, so is this selfish? Is this somewhat crass or self-indulgent of the Apostle Paul? 
Is this a bit self-centered? Is this a works righteousness? No, of course not. Let me tell you why it's not. Because God made the promise. God promised the reward. And if God promised the reward, it's not wrong to long for that and want what God has promised. Furthermore, listen carefully, our eternal reward takes into consideration not only what we did, but why we did it. Why did you get that? Our eternal reward takes in effect of what we did and why we did it. Because what we did can either affirm the doing or cancel the doing. What I mean by that, Paul writing again to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he's looking ahead to the time of his reward. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, you judge nothing before the time you wait until the Lord comes who will bring everything to light. He will bring the hidden things of darkness To the fore, he will reveal the counsels or disclose the motives of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So you see, motive is bound up in the deed. And admittedly, sometimes it seems as though you never do anything from a totally pure motive. But God knows the motive. God knows the heart. God knows what drives us. And what motive is pure will be rewarded. God knows what's behind it. So we don't need to fear that we might be rewarded for selfish, self-centered, egotistical, self-indulgent, crass service. Because the wrong motive cancels the doing of the deed. But whatever is done for the Lord Jesus Christ... And it's done in his name with a proper heart, a proper motive for his glory. That will be rewarded. So Paul anticipates the reward. He anticipates that reward which comes from a true heart and a pure intent. And so his heart is set on that. He is the athlete who has won the struggle. He is the wrestler who has won uh, the match. He is the boxer who has won the fight. He is the runner who has won the race. And now he looks to the judge's stand and he waits to hear of his winner's crown and to receive it. Nothing wrong with that. His effort was worthy. The righteous judge will properly reward him without mistake so he looks forward to the future and notice he says there is led up for me now the verb led used here is the same verb that's used back in first timothy chapter 6 verse 19 to give you the context i'll i'll quote from verse 17 of first timothy chapter 6 paul is um 
commanding those who are rich. In verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. He's commanding those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, he says, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Here comes verse 19. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, the word means safely stored away or deposited. And in verse 8 here of Second Timothy 4, it's used in exactly the same basic way to express the same basic idea. The same term, by the way, is used of uh, athletic awards. So he's staying within, the, staying within the framework of this athletic analogy that he often uses. He says there is stored up, there is led up, there is safely deposited with God a reward for my service. Now he's not talking about the uh, future, but interestingly this is present tense here. Um, so it could be rendered. All that remains is what is being led, stored up for me. Because he was still in the process of accumulating reward as he's writing this. It's not right. You know, he's not in heaven yet. He's not in glory yet. Obviously, he's still alive. And he's still serving the Lord. Now, as he looks at his reward, he sees it in a very general terms. He doesn't go into detail, but I want you to understand what he means by this. And hopefully... Uh, this will be rich and helpful uh, to ourselves. What does he call his reward? Well, verse 8, he says, There is laid up, stored up, deposited for me in the presence of God, the crown. Or perhaps the laurel wreath or factor of righteousness. The word translated crown is Stephanos, and it had to do with a wreath placed on someone's head, usually woven like a garland out of a plant. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 27, 29 to describe the crown of thorns uh, that was placed on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the word Diadema, or diadem as we would know it in the English, speaks of a king's crown. That's not what's being referred to here. This wreath uh, woven out of a plant, in Jesus' case, referenced there, it was a thorny plant, was a, a wreath that was used to put on the head of a person who was being honoured. So it was used, for example, for a a magistrate who had accomplished or completed his term of civil government, he was stepping down. And when they had a special event in his honour as a retiring magistrate, they would put 
uh, on his head this, this laurel wreath as a symbol of the crown of faithful service. It was used whenever there was a special celebration in the city, uh, you know, to give celebration of joy, you know, special guests at such celebrations would wear uh, this laurel wreath on their heads as an indication of the uh, focus of the dignity and the honour that they were to receive on these occasions. It was used, for example, when people went into the temple to worship pagan gods. And they often put this garland on their own heads to indicate the dignity and the honour which they considered they were undertaking by entering the presence of this you know, pagan deity. So what I'm trying to explain to you is that this was used of celebration and special honours. But most of all, it was associated with athletics. And the winner of any great athletics event in that part of the world at that time would receive this garland around their head. In Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it talks about anyone competing in athletics. He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And the crown would be public honour symbolized by the wearing of the wreath upon the head. Much like, you know, Olympic athletes today, you know, would have a gold, silver, or a bronze medal around their necks. And Paul says, I am ready to step up onto the judge's stand and receive the righteous, uh, receive from the hand of the righteous judge, you know, the, the proper reward. He, he's anticipating the winner's wreath. He's anticipating a winner's uh, wreath unlike, you know, what he had seen in, in the world. You know, what these athletes and other folks were receiving was a, a reward that would fade, a reward that would grow old. And 1 Corinthians 9.25, speaking of the effort and the winner's reward, for the believer, he wrote, you know, they do it, talking about folks in the world, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we do it for an imperishable, imperishable crown. Those runners run to win for something that perishes. In the Christian life, we run the race to win something which is imperishable. And what is it? This crown he talks about first, he had a crown of what? It's a crown of righteousness. Now, as we look at that, we might ask the question, what does that mean? Now, I'm no expert in Greek, but thankfully there are lots of helpful tools. And there are actually um, several options when it uh, comes to this rendering of this verse here. It's a, in a genitive form in the Greek, so some would say it's a crown which comes from righteousness, righteousness being the source of the crown. That is to say it's the crown given to me for my righteousness, the crown that precedes 
as a result of my righteousness. That's possible linguistically. But that does not sound true to the nature of the character and the humility of the Apostle Paul. Nor does it ring true to the rest of what Scripture teaches about righteousness. And furthermore, it wouldn't define the crown. You know, if it read the crown that proceeds from righteousness, we wouldn't know what the crown meant or what it was. I'm not going to go through all of the options, but here's another one and perhaps a better one. The more accurate one, I would say, which would read like this. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown which is righteousness. Now, why is that preferable? Well, because that's what's anticipated when we come to Christ. It's his righteousness. That's what the scriptures teach. It's not our righteousness. We look to Christ. We look to his righteousness. We look to be clothed in his righteousness. So, for example, remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus characterizes the one who comes to true faith. And he says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be filled. Filled with what? Filled with what they hunger and thirst for. Those who hunger, hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled with righteousness. Beloved, isn't that the crown of the believer's life? There are two things that a believer, including the Apostle Paul, desires. One, the presence of God. Don't we desire that? And the other is what? The absence of sin. And so he's looking forward to a life crowned, marked by righteousness, a life marked by the absence of sin, that uh, great debilitating reality in our lives, deeply entrenched in this flesh. Now, follow this, friends. Paul had the gift of imputed righteousness because Christ had been made unto him righteousness. It wasn't his righteousness. It was something that was imputed to him, transferred to him, given to him. He had imputed righteousness and practical righteousness because, as Romans 6 says, he who was once the servant of sin became the servant of righteousness. Now, he didn't yet have perfect righteousness, did he? So, yes, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to him in salvation. Yes, practical righteousness became part of his life through the indwelling Holy Spirit and the power of that new life as a result of his conversion. But he had not yet known the fullness of eternal perfection and righteousness. The kingdom of God is ultimately, Romans fourteen seventeen, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Christ is ultimately to, meet, to be made unto us righteousness. And so as you look at the future and you look at your eternal reward, 
What you see is righteousness, Christ's righteousness. That's your reward. Galatians 5, verse 5. Paul sees that in the future. He says, for we through the Spirit, listen to this, we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So yes, as I say, we have imputed righteousness from Christ. Yes, we have by virtue of the Spirit's power in our lives, practical righteousness, the ability to start to live the Christian life out. But as yet, we are not living perfectly. We do not have this righteousness to the full. And that's what we are hungering for. It's what we're thirsting for. Every true believer longs for true and perfect righteousness. Peter understood it. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 13. Peter says, I'm looking ahead to a new heaven and a new earth. Nevertheless, he says, we according to his promise look to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness. The absence of sin. Revelation tells us that there won't be any unrighteousness in heaven, none at all. All the liars, all the cheats, all the sorcerers, all the adulterers, all the defilers, all the murderers, they will all be outside. Heaven will be righteousness perfected. And so Paul is looking at the reward of his life, which is eternal righteousness. Beloved, does that sound wonderful to you? You know, the absence of sin, does that sound wonderful to you? The presence of God for all eternity, does that sound wonderful to you? Never to know again temptation, never to know again an evil thought, never to know an evil word, never to speak an evil word, Never to do an evil deed. Never to do something that you shouldn't have done. Absolutely perfect and eternal righteousness. That's what he longed for. Because it comes through Christ. The greatest battle the Apostle Paul ever knew in his life. Was not against you know false teachers. It was not against demons. It wasn't against Satan. The greatest battle Paul fought every day of his life was what it was about. It was against sin, sin in his own life. The weariness of life is all bound up in that fact, isn't it? You know, while we are trying to be successful in the battle against those outside, boy, we're constantly having to battle against. What's inside? And he longed for that eternal righteousness. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saying an amen with the Apostle Paul. You're longing for that eternal righteousness. The fight was a fight and the struggle involved him. And the race was a tough race and he was running against himself. And as he tried to keep the treasure of the faith He had to fight his own fallenness, his own sinfulness, and his own heart to uh, stay true to God's word. And certainly you get weary of it it all, don't you? And uh, you long for it to be over. 
You want to be received by God into his presence, into that state of perfect righteousness. You know, received by God's grace into that eternal state. And that's what Paul longed for when he's talking about this righteousness. We've only got to the first part of the first tonight, so obviously I have to come back to this next week. Um, But you see, it's not our righteousness, it's not our good works, it's Christ's righteousness. It's Christ's works that have been imputed to us. And that's what we long for. 